About 20 years ago, uh, many of you will remember this, the, the biggest movie in the country was called Dances with Wolves. And some of you are thinking, that was 20 years ago? Um, told the story of a, of a U.S. officer named Lieutenant John Dunbar, who was stationed at a fort uh, in, the, in the prairie at the edge of the western frontier of U.S. territory. And uh, when, he, when he got to his post, which was a very long ride out from the next closest town, uh, you know, several days, uh, when he got there, it was, it was abandoned, it was, it was deserted, there was no one else there. But he stayed, took up his post, uh, and through a series of events, both the officer that assigned him there and the man who had given him a ride out there both died. And so not only was he alone, but no one else even knew that he was there. And as he figures out how to survive out there, it's not too long before he comes into contact with the, the native Sioux population. And they're, of course, distrustful of each other at first, but over, over time they build, a, they build a little bit of trust. Eventually they actually build, build a friendship, and his friendship with them grows. Uh, eventually he actually falls in love with one of them, gets married, and finally, after, after months and months of no reinforcements and no one else coming out there and, and no sign of the U.S. Army anywhere, uh, he finally goes and lives with them. And he learns their customs, and he learns their language, and he begins to, to dress like them and talk like them. And, and finally, one day, uh, he, ha- he has to go back to the fort to pick up some personal belongings. And when he arrives there, to his amazement, the army has shown back up. And when they see him, they don't see one of their own. They see a Sioux. And so they, they capture him. And in, in interrogating him, they, they figure out his story, and he's branded a traitor. And, and a deserter. And he's so disgusted by this whole process, he, he, he gives up speaking to them in English at all and just begins speaking to them in the Sioux tongue. And one of the, one of the guards uh, holding him there just kind of looks at him in, in disgust and says, you turned Indian, didn't you? You see, it is our human nature to take on our surroundings. We're like chameleons. That's... A big part of how we learn. We just we look at what's going on around us. We look at what the customs are. Look at how the people are, and and we absorb ourselves into that. Whatever culture you grew up in, wherever your home is, whether it's here in Texas or somewhere else, what, you know that that culture is permanently ingrained as a part of who you are, and that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like I said, that's a necessary part of learning. It's how we it's how we figure a lot of these things out. Um, if you've grown up in if you've been in Texas any, any time at all, you know certain things that, that a lot of other people don't know. For instance, you, you know that the Battle of the Alamo was probably the single most important battle in human history, right? Because it was through that battle and the cry, remember the Alamo, that Texas gained its independence. So that's a pretty pivotal moment in human history, right? All right that, you know, that's it. I remember several years ago, um, you know, my wife and I, right after we got married and, and graduated from Baylor, we moved to, uh, to North Carolina for, for about five years. And I'll never forget the first time we were taken out for barbecue. And, and we had the meat, and they had the sauce in front of us that wasn't already in the meat, and we poured it on there, and it was, it was runny, and it was clear, and it was made out of vinegar. And... You know, we just looked at it, and, and we didn't, we were just sort of shocked. We didn't know what, what, what to do with this. I mean, you know, we had grown up in a culture where, where people knew how to make barbecue, right? And, 
and they didn't. And it wasn't really their fault, but, you know, they weren't exposed to the culture that, that we were growing up. And so there was, you know, there was this disconnect immediately. And, uh, you, you know, we just we had to kind of help them along a little bit before we could. Um, I say culture, culture isn't good or bad. It's just, it's just part of life. Uh, whenever you have groups of people, small or large, a culture is going to develop of things that are norm, normal, things that are expected. And there's always, because we're human beings, because we're fallen creatures, there's always going to be positive and negative aspects to that culture. But as Christians, we have to be very careful and very wise and very discerning so that we don't blindly accept the culture that we're in. And not just our overall culture, but also the subcultures that we live in, you know, among our friends, our workplaces, our schools, you know, the, the smaller groups in our lives that, that in and of themselves have their own, their own culture. Because we have to discern what is and is not contrary to the life that we live in Christ. And it's not always as apparent as it should be. Because whatever culture you're, you grew up in, whatever culture is, is ingrained in you, to you, that's normal. We're going to look at a pivotal moment in the history of ancient Israel. We're going to look at a time where they looked at the world around them. They were discontent with their circumstances. They looked around, and they made a decision to be more like the people around them than to be like the children of God that God had called them to be. It's a very sobering story, uh, and, and there's a lot that I think we can learn from, from their mistake here. So we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 8. We're going to read the first seven verses here. It says, and it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his two sons judges over Israel. Now the, same of, the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in, in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old. Not a very nice way to start the conversation, but whatever. Uh, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us who judge us like all the other nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. I'll give you just a little bit of background to this story. Uh, the, the, the full background to this story comes in the book of Judges. Uh, the people of Israel under Moses had, had uh, gone through the wilderness, uh, gotten to the edge of the promised land, then under Joshua they had, they had conquered uh, a lot of it and then slowly kind of took over the rest of it. This was an ongoing process that took centuries. And in, in the book of Judges, they're pretty much settled. They're divided into their tribes. They're not, they're not united really at all as a nation. Uh, they're just kind of in their different tribes. And, they, and, and this, this vicious cycle just keeps repeating. You see it over and over again throughout the, throughout the book where they, where they, they turn from God. They forget him. They follow the other gods of the other nations around them and the other nations and the people that are still with them in that land that they didn't drive out completely. They begin to follow those gods. They turn away from God. And as that happens, God had made a very special covenant relationship with them that basically said this, if you follow me 
and you serve me fully, then you'll have victory over your enemies and, and eventually peace, and you'll be secure in the land that I've given you. But if you don't, if you seek after other gods, you will fall to your neighbors. They will oppress you. Eventually they will conquer you. And if you don't change their ways, they will eventually drive you out of that land. But whenever you call back to me, I will always bring you back. And so you see this played out perfectly over and over and over again in the book of Judges. They, they fall away from God. They come under the oppression of this, you know, this group or that. And they finally get the message. They cry out to God. God raises up for them a judge who leads them into military victory over those people. And throughout the lifetime of that judge, they follow him. And things are great. But once that judge dies, they turn back. And the cycle repeats itself over and over and over and over again. And the final verse of the book of Judges that really sums up the whole book is in Judges 21:25. that says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that statement there is actually a beautifully constructed sentence that has a very clear double meaning. They did not have a physical king at that point, but that's only a partial meaning because God never actually intended them to have a king. The full meaning of that, when it says that they had no king over them, was that God was not their king. Because that was the intent. Was that they wouldn't be like the other nations, but that God would be their king. And what he's saying here is, is that that wasn't the case. And then, and that verse leads directly into 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, I know the book of Ruth is in between there, which is kind of confusing. Actually, over time, the books of the Old Testament, we put them in a different order. Originally, Judges literally, you know, 1 Samuel was the next book, and they flowed directly into one another. And so this really sets the scene for the whole book of 1 Samuel. And so in 1 Samuel, uh, you see uh, a guy named Eli is the judge. He's in charge. And he's not great, but at least he does fear God, but his sons are terrible. And eventually God wipes out that whole family and raises up the prophet Samuel, who does follow God. And they do have victory under him. And it's a, and it's a, a really, you know, kind of spectacular revival time in the history of that nation. But now... Now, as we see, he's gotten old, and his sons are following sort of the example of Eli's sons. They're, they're not following him. And, and so we, we kind of reach this crisis point where, where the people are scared. They're scared. They have problems. And rather than look, look to God, they look to the culture around them for a solution. How can we fix this? And if we're not careful... We follow that same example. So I want to look at just three causes of this cultural compromise. What causes people to look around and see the options that culture gives us and choose those over God? What makes that happen? And we're going to look at at what they do. The first one is pretty simple. It's our view of circumstances. You know, we rely on it. We rely on our own human estimation of the situation. That's That's what they did. Now, did Israel have a real problem? Yeah, they did. Militarily, they weren't much to speak of. They weren't united as a country. Were Samuel's sons any good? Apparently, legitimately, no. They, they weren't going to be great leaders. So we can't look at them and say, the answer was right in front of you. Because it wasn't. Okay? This was something that would have taken, taken faith. The answer wasn't apparent. They have a legitimate 
concern. But instead of turning to God, they look around and say, what, what should we do about this? How can, how can we fix this? What are the culture's options? And it was, well, you need a king, because that's what all the other countries do. This is so easy to do. Not that we're looking around for a king necessarily, but this idea that we, that we look at our circumstances, we try to figure things out, and as we, as we look at it all, you know, as we're faced with different problems, we look at what the world has to offer as our solution. Um, there are lots of parents in this room, lots of parents in our church. Beth and I are parents, and we're, we're pretty early on in the whole parenting thing. You know, we, have a, we have a nine-month-old and a six-year-old. And uh, so we're still kind of kind of getting used to this, but we're already feeling a tension that many of you in this room can absolutely relate to, and that's this tension between what our culture expects of our children to be successful, and what we as Christian parents want to be first place in our kids. You know, there's a million opportunities out there, and in our culture. You, just celebrates in being busy and doing lots of really good things. And so as our children get older, they have, they have lots of opportunities to do, to do sports and, and dance and, and, and do well in school and be involved in different clubs and, and surf here and, and be involved in theater and learn an instrument and, and all these millions of opportunities that, that they could do. And they're all good, mostly. Uh, you know, none of those things are, are bad, and, you know, and I would never knock any of that. But the problem comes when we also want God to be first place in their life. And we want a real, mature, passionate, growing relationship with him to be the, the foundation of their life. And there's only so many hours in the day. And there's homework and school and hopefully even time with the family and, and all these things that compete and if we're not careful, again, not that any of those other things are, are, are bad, but if we're not careful, we start to go on what I call cultural autopilot, where we simply rely on the things the world has to offer, the things that the world says our kids need to be successful, and we just run that, you know, we just follow that track without being very discerning, and that becomes our king, or our kid's king. Because that's, what, that's just what our culture does. And frankly, it's easier, right? Because we can see money. We can see good grades. We can see athletic success. We can see musical ability. We can see talents. Those are concrete things where we can look at our kids and we say, they are doing something. But when it comes to faith and character, that's a little, little trickier. That's a little harder, harder to see. It's not, not as easy to look at those things and, and see definite milestones. Not that they don't exist, but it's harder. It's more indirect a lot of the time. Some of you are in jobs where you, know, you have your job description, you have how many hours a week you're supposed to work, but there's an unwritten expectation in your job that you work quite a bit more, put in a whole lot more in order to be successful there in order to really be accepted in the culture of that, of that job. And it may not even be that place. It may be your entire occupation. Maybe that culture exists throughout the entire occupation. And you're torn because 
because you want to be successful and you want to, to do well in your job. You want to, to do well in that, in that cultural expectation that is there, but at the same time you know that if you do that, your family will suffer because there, won't be, there aren't enough hours in the day. And, again, many times we'll just go on autopilot and we'll work those hours, we'll, we'll please our boss, and even when we see fractures in the relationships with our spouse and our kids, we'll still press on basically because we don't see any other option. We need that job. We have bills to pay. We want to provide for our kids and our family, and we just don't see any other option because we're, we only see from a human point of view. And that's what we rely on. Some of you may be in jobs in a workplace where it's the expectation that you fudge numbers or gloss over things to make a better appearance for a client or a customer or, or a boss. And even though you know it violates personal integrity and maybe some of these things aren't even that big a deal, you struggle because you know it's not right. But, but yet there's this expectation, again, you need, you need a job. You need your, your boss's approval to, to keep going there. And you, you see no way out, and so you, and so you cut corners. Maybe you're in a marriage and things aren't great. Uh, the passion seems gone. You're, you're not enjoying each other like you once did. It seems like every conversation just turns in, into an argument. And you start to tell yourself, this isn't good for the kids. You know, me and the spouse, we, we don't have that much common in common anymore. And our culture gives a pretty easy way out and says, just take it. Find love somewhere else. No big deal. It's even socially acceptable. And we, and too often, we rather than fight for that and do the hard thing, we we allow ourselves to go down that path, the easy path, the one that the, the culture just kind of hands to us on a silver platter. Maybe you're in school, and in your school, there's a culture of of cheating. Maybe you're in college, and you're in a major that's highly competitive, and people are cutting corners to stay ahead of the game, and you are scared that if you don't cut the same corners that they do, that you'll lose your competitive edge, and you won't get accepted to grad school, you won't get a job, and, you're, and you again, you just don't know what the other option is. Because there's that culture there, and it seems like to, to do well, you have to conform to the culture. Now, maybe you're single. And you want to be in a relationship, and you finally, that guy or that girl comes along that, that gives you the attention you've been yearning for. And yet, their heart isn't fully devoted to God. He's not, he or she is not first priority in your life. And, and yet, you really like this person. You're attracted to them. They treat you well. And frankly, you think this may be the best I ever get. If I turn this down, there may not be another. And so, you fo- and so you follow your heart rather than faith. We have daily decisions, big and small, where we have, where we have decisions to make. And where the, our culture gives us an answer or many possible answers. And many times these answers, though they make perfect sense if we rationalize it out, they're still contrary to what God wants for us. With Israel, God's going to give them exactly what they wanted. He's going to give them a king, 
and he's going to, you know, they want a king that would lead them into battle that they could look up to, and he's going, and God is going to give them exactly what they asked for. He's going to give them a king named Saul, who literally stands head and shoulders above everyone else, or, you know, in the room. A tall guy, a strong guy, uh, a likable guy. People like him. He's from a respectable family. People know his dad, and and they, and they like this guy. You know, he's you know, and and when when Saul first presents them to him, you know, they probably thought they'd gotten like the Peyton Manning of kings. You know, I mean, this guy was awesome. Exactly what they were hoping for. Someone that they could put their hope in to lead them into victory. And most of you know the rest of that story. It doesn't turn out so well for him, does it? That king mimics their priorities. He doesn't fully trust God. He acts simply based on his human view of circumstances. He doesn't obey fully. God takes the kingdom away from him. Eventually Saul dies, but not before he brings down his entire family with him. We've got to learn to see beyond our circumstances. So that's... that's Way number one that we go down this path. The second way that we engage in cultural compromise is we simply have this built-in. I referred to this while ago. We have this built-in desire to just to just fit in. We all want to, even if we claim we don't. You know, sometimes you hear people say, "Well, you know, I don't care what anybody thinks." Blah blah. blah. It's not true. Everybody cares what someone else thinks. They may not care what you think or the people immediately around, but they care what someone thinks. They want to belong somewhere. You know, even people who claim to be nonconformists, if you watch them closely, they usually end up with other people that dress like them and talk like them and claim they're nonconformists, and they all act like one another and they're nonconformity. Okay? Okay, that's, that tends to be what happens. Okay? We all want a place where we're, where we're accepted. And again, this by itself isn't a bad thing. We do need to fit in to some degree to our society to survive. We need to figure out, figure out the rules. Uh, of our schools, our families, our workplaces. You know, how many of you drove here on the left side of the road? None of you. The ones that did, they're not here. Okay? All right? So, you know, some conformity is good, right? You know, you know, some figuring out our culture, figuring out what things are, you know, are good things. Would, you know, is driving on the left side of the road inherently worse than driving on the right side of the road? No. Lots of countries do it. It works out fine. But here... It doesn't matter. You drive on the right side of the road or you pay a pretty heavy price for it. That's just, that's just the way it is. So, so we've got to learn these things. Um, but we also need to realize that, you know, that conforming, you know, or, or that, you're that or, anyway, um, you know, wanting to fit in, wanting to be unique, um, that's not always a good thing. Sometimes conforming is good. You can see sort of the, the little fork up here. So you've seen this picture before. You know, just because you're meek doesn't mean you're useful. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes conformity is good, right? On the other hand, um, you're wanting to fit in simply to follow a tradition or a cultural norm. That can wreak havoc. For instance, the running of the bulls. Okay. There's a tradition there. It's not good, okay? And people go there every year and do this thing. And every year people get hurt. And I'm um, not really sure why they do it. But following along just because of tradition by itself, you know, not, not such a good thing. And when we talk to the teenagers about it, this, we call it peer pressure. 
you know, this, this, this overwhelming need to conform to people around us. Um, they did a study not too long ago, uh, some people did, and they found that if, the, you know, they surveyed a bunch of teenagers, and 38% of them, three out of eight, if they saw their friends making fun of someone that they actually liked, they would join in just because the, the others around them were doing that. Even if they liked the person, three out of eight would join in and tease that person just because that's what the people around them were doing. That's peer pressure. But you know what? It doesn't end with t- when we're a teenager. It doesn't end when we're 20 or 25 or 35 or 60. Peer pressure, it keeps going. And you all feel this to some degree or another. Back in 1935, uh, there was a, 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 a study done by one of the first psychologists. Um, I'm really not exactly sure how to pronounce this guy's name, um, Muzaffar Sharif. Um, and what they did was they, they took people and they said, okay, we're going to show you one line, and then we're going to show you three lines next to it, and you tell us which line is the same length. And, and it was pretty obvious, kind of like this illustration here. And as they, as they tested people, of course, you know, without fail, every single person would get it right. But then they would take that same, you know, that same person and they would put them in a group with six other people. And the six other people were actually part of the experiment, and the seventh person didn't know it. And they would answer, and they would answer the question out loud. And they had the, the person who didn't know what was going on, they would have him go last. So the first six people would go, and they would all give the same wrong answer, all six of them. And you know what they found? Two out of three people would give the same wrong answer as the rest of the group. Okay? Those are adults. Like I said, peer pressure doesn't end. And what they, what they found was that the greater the size of the group... And, you know, there are three factors that that increase someone's likelihood to conform. One was the size of the group. As it got larger, you know, the the greater the need to conform. Um, The more people that go before you, you know, the more people you see giving the same answer, you know, doing the same thing, that has a bigger influence. The more people that go before you. And the third thing that made a big difference is the, you know, the, the increasing likelihood that you'll have to engage those people again which means that if you're in a social situation, that those that you are closest to, those that that you anticipate being a part of your life, that if they're doing something that is blatantly wrong, you are much more likely to go along with it. And the more people it is and the more you see them doing it, the greater likelihood that's going to happen. And that needs to be a warning to all of us. Um, You know, so you've experienced this. You're in some kind of a social situation where, um, may, you know, maybe it's at work. Maybe it's just friends or, or whatever. And, and from the cues in that group, over time you pick up pretty quickly that that group is not going to be very open if you bring up your faith. You just sense that. You know that within that group culture, that's not going to fit very well. Um, so you stay silent. Um, because really, you don't want people to think that you're strange or different. You don't, be, you don't want to be labeled a, a religious freak. And, but you know you should speak out. There might be a person in that group that, that you know your faith could be an encouragement to them, but you don't want to be labeled. And so you, and so you stay silent. There might be someone there, and you know that they don't know God. You know that, that you've got 
not just an answer. You've got the answer because Christ is the answer. And yet you still say, stay silent because that group pressure is very real. You see someone being treated unfairly and you know it's unfair. You know it's not right. You know it's hurting them. And yet we fail to stand up against that, that group pressure because we don't want to be on the receiving end of that. You know, maybe it's even there's a boss or some authority figure in your in your life, and you don't even like them. People are complaining about them, and you know that their complaints they're actually they're kind of legitimate. But the way they're treating it, the way they're handling it, is extremely disrespectful towards that person. That and that person is an authority. But rather than speak up and try to stop it, you figure, I don't want you know, I don't want to be seen as weird or seen to be defending this guy because I don't like him either. And so I'll just stay silent or maybe I'll just join along with it and treat this guy disrespectfully because that's a culture. It's culturally okay to treat our authority figures badly if they deserve it. And we just kind of go along with it. Um, some of you parents are in here and you, your child wants to do something and you don't feel very good about it at all. You've got a really bad feeling about it. But all the other parents, it seems like, are letting their kids do this. And that whole peer pressure thing starts. You don't want to be the uncool parent. And your child will be the first one to point out that you're the uncool parent. Okay? And you don't want that. You want a good relationship with your child. And and you probably don't like to say no, but you you really don't feel good about this. And so you you don't want to be labeled as as overprotective. You don't want your child to be stigmatized. So against your better judgment, you let them go ahead and do it. Now, the flip side of that is that sometimes parents really are overprotective, and that's another issue. But sometimes we need to just be wise and say no. Um, you know, you can think of a million different examples where there's something in the culture, and it's, and it's wrong. And you need to stay, say something. You need to stand up. But the desire to fit in is so strong. This can happen at a cultural level in extremely powerful ways that you can't even begin to to realize what's happening until you're caught up in it. Even then, sometimes you don't realize what's happening. Uh, a man that had a big influence on my life when I was in high school was a man named Stephen Cellini. Uh He was the founder uh, and the headmaster of the of the school I, I went to, uh, eighth through twelfth grade in, in Fort Worth. And and he, he had a really interesting background. When he was a child, uh, he grew up in Hungary. And while he was there, uh, while you know, as an older child, uh, the Nazis took over his country. And as a teenager, the the communists came in, and he was actually part, uh, for those of you who know a little bit of history, he was actually part of the Hungarian student revolution in the 1950s, and, uh, which didn't end too well. And he had to flee to, to the United States and eventually started the school that I, that I attended. And he told us a story one time that I'll never forget. Uh, he told a story of when he was a child, before the Nazis had taken over, um, he and his family, uh, his father decided to take them on a trip to hear Adolf Hitler. Not much was known about Hitler at that point, at least not to them. You know, the things that Hitler would later become known for, he wasn't known for those yet. All they knew was that they kept hearing about this charismatic leader in Germany who was, who was turning things around. And that's really all they knew about him. And they, and they heard that he was a, a good speaker, and so, they, so they, wanted to, they, they wanted to go and hear him. And his dad did. And so they, so they took a trip. Uh, they went to one of, one of the rallies where Hitler was, was speaking at. And, you know, and there were thousands of people there. 
And as Hitler spoke, and if you've ever seen, you know, tapes of Hitler, and there's, you know, lots of movies that reenact this pretty well, you know, he what, you know, he knew how to work a crowd like no one else, and and the crowd got into it and, and got more and more more revved up, and and by the end of it, they're all, you know, they're all saluting him, you know, with you know with the siege, hail, siege, hail, you know, you know, do, you know, doing that, and and everyone's into it, and to and to his amazement, he saw his dad doing it. And when the rally was over, and they all, you know, they all dispersed, he said he'll never forget. He looked up at his dad, and his dad was crying. And he said, son, I'm sorry. I didn't know what I was doing. And the reason he told us that story was as a warning about, about, about crowds about groups, about the effect they can have on you to override your judgment. It's very real. And it's much more powerful than, than we want to give it credit for. It took the entire nation of Germany over the brink. And no one, or very few, would stand up. There's actually a very famous quote by a pastor, Pastor Martin Niemöller. Most of you have seen this quote. This quote actually appears in different forms because he used it more than once and mentioned different people in it. But basically it goes something like this. Pastor Martin Niemöller, he, he spent four years at Dachau prison camp. And, uh, and after that he began speaking. And, and he said, you know, they, they came first for the communists, but I didn't speak up because I, I wasn't a communist. How many of you in here would speak up for a communist? That might be kind of hard, wouldn't it? Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Uh, then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. In one version of this, we know that he said when they came for the Jehovah's Witnesses, I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jehovah's Witness. You know, how many would speak up if, if they were being mistreated? And then they came for me, and by that time there was no one left to speak up. You know, cultural conformity, the desire to fit in, and if it goes too far, the fear to speak out. It's powerful. You know, we have our culture today, which thankfully is nothing like what happened in Germany. But we do have our culture today where we have this, you know, as Christians, we have this view of America where we're very proud of it. And we see America as in, in you know, having a lot of you know, Christian values involved in, in, it, in its founding. And, and we look back at that with a lot of pride. But at the same time, our country is very likely the most materialistic country in the world. And so there's this, there's this blatant contradiction in our culture. But it's a contradiction that if you grow up in it, it's not as easily apparent. Because to you, that's normal. To you, that's, that's Christianity. You know, many of, you know, many of our missionaries, even in this church, who've, who've gone away for a few years, live somewhere else outside the United States and comes back to them, to them, and I've talked to them, it's very apparent in fact, in most cases, the transition back to the United States is harder for them than the transition to the foreign country when they went there the first time. Because things are so secularized and so materialistic. And yet we view you know, our, you know, Christianity as being a big part of our culture. And so in many cases, in many Christians, in many lives, you know, and probably none of us are completely exempt from this, we live out that very contradiction. And sometimes we don't even see it. Often, we don't even see it. It's so hard to fight against the expectations of culture, even, you know, when we don't even realize 
how different they are from, from God's word. And most people don't want to stick out. Most people want to fit in. But the thing is, as Christians, we're not called to fit in. We're called to be different. And, and Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We are aliens and strangers in this world. We shouldn't look like the culture. You know, many of you have seen, you know, people from different countries that, you know, you can tell they haven't been in the United States just a real long time, or if they have, they've only been around people from that same country who are here also. And, and they don't fit in with the culture at all, and that should be us. We shouldn't fit into our culture. We should look a lot different. Uh, we shouldn't conform in those ways. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus gives this really interesting parable about the sower and the seeds, and most of you know this parable pretty well. I just want to point out one small part of it. In Luke 8, verse 7, he says, you know, the sower is casting out the seed, and he tells what happens to the seed as it falls in different areas. And part of the seed, it says in verse 7, is that it, it falls among thorns, and the thorns grow up and they choke it out. And then seven verses later in verse 14, Jesus says exactly what those thorns are. He says, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have, who have heard. They've heard the gospel. They've heard the truth. But as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and with riches and the pleasures of this life. And they, bear, and they bring no fruit to maturity. Worries, pleasures, Things, stuff, riches. As we pursue those things, as those things become all-encompassing in our focus, which, by the way, those are all, that's all self-focus. As we do that, you see what it does? It chokes spiritual life. So, so the pursuit of pleasures and material things, it chokes, it chokes out our spiritual life, and we live in the most materialistic country in the world. You know, think about that. Matthew, in Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, he says, You are the salt of the earth. And if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? We can't afford to be tasteless salt. He says it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And he also says, You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and, and place it under a bucket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And so let your light shine in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We're meant to be lights. You know, we teach our kids this song, you know, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. We teach them this. We know this. You know, how's verse 2 go? Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. That's what we teach our kids. Most of our kids still know this song. And yet, as we... As we become self-focused, as we pursue the things that our culture finds are important, you know, it says they're important, you know what we do? We hide our, our light. We dim it ourselves. And we don't shine as bright as we should. So our desire to fit in, that's the second thing. The third thing that keeps us, you know, compromised culturally is the, uh, is the, basically just a lack of trust in God. Look at verse 6. You know, in First Samuel there, he says, 
He's, you know, God says to Samuel, they haven't rejected you. In verses 6 and 7, he said, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. They've rejected me. God had always provided for them. Every time they turned to him without fail, he had always provided. Whenever they turned back to him and repented, God raised up leaders out of nowhere. They didn't need to be looking for a king. Whoever their next leader was going to be, if they turned from him, God would have risen him up from somewhere. That's not a problem for God. But they couldn't see beyond their circumstances. They couldn't trust God with that decision. And so they chose a king. And again, that, that decision didn't turn out too well for him. Saul ends up dying. But you know what happens after that, the rest of the story, is that there's another king that's coming. And his name is David. And with that king, God said, I'm going to show these people what a king looks like that I would have chosen. I'm going to show them something different. And with David, things are radically different. And no one would have expected David to be a king. You guys know the story? Samuel Samuel tells Jesse, Jesse, I'm coming to your house, and one of your sons is going to be the next king. I'm going to anoint them today. And so they go to Jesse's house. All the sons are there. Samuel walks in. And God says, it's not any of these. And Samuel's kind of confused. And he says, Jesse, are these all your sons? And Jesse says, well, yeah, these are all my sons. Well, I mean, except David. I mean, he's out with the sheep. Okay. Now think about this. Someone comes to your father's house, says one of your sons is going to be king, and your dad doesn't think to call you in the room. Okay. That was David. He tends sheep. He likes to play his little harp, you know. That's that's David. What was different about David? David saw things from God's point of view. God called him a man after his own heart. He goes down. He sees Goliath. He sees Goliath insulting the nation of Israel, God himself, God's people. And while everyone else sees as mankind sees, everyone else sees through human circumstances, and everyone is like, I'm not going to fight them, including, by the way, their own resident giant, King Saul, you know, who's a head taller than everyone else and should have been the first one out there. David says, David doesn't see any of that. He sees a Philistine insulting God, saying, bring it on. God can handle that. And so he's like, okay, well, I'll do it. No problem. Bear, lion, ten-foot-tall guy, whatever. If God's with me, like we sang about, if God is with us, then who can be against us? So he goes out there and he takes him down. Saul starts to pursue David. Saul becomes very jealous of David because everyone loves David. And David becomes a general pretty quickly. Saul begins to pursue him. And twice David has an opportunity to kill him. And the second time, his men are urging him to. They, they, they find Saul, and he's asleep in his camp. And David and, and one of his men are standing there. And they, and they have a spear. And his, you know, and his, his assistant is, is saying, do it. Kill this guy. God has ordained it. You know God has ordained you as king. You know for you to be king, the former king has to be dead. This king is evil. He is wicked. He's done all these things. He's pursuing you. Obviously, God has ordained this. Put this together. So just do it. And you know what David says? It makes perfect sense. From a human point of view, obviously, this is what David should do because he is going to be king. And so obviously, he's got to take Saul out here. But David doesn't see through human eyes. You know what he says in 1 Samuel chapter 26, 10 and 11? He says, as, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come that he dies in battle. 
or he will go down into battle or, or, and, and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. I won't touch the man. I have such great faith in God's plan that even though it looks self-evident that I should take this action, I'm not going to do it because that's still wrong. That's still killing the king that God appointed despite what he's done. And so God's going to work this out, and I have faith that God will. God's going to take care of Saul some other way, but it's not going to be by my hand. He trusted that there was another solution, even though he didn't know what it was. And so the question is this. Are you convinced that God's way is really better for you? Can you actually trust God with situations where you can't see the answer? Where it seems like every cultural norm, everything in our society says you've, these are your only options. Can we trust God to walk in integrity in spite of that? Even when it looks like it will end up bad for us. So to close, I just want to share with you a few quick things on, on how we can fight this. How do we keep God on our throne? How can we discern when you bought into someone else's idea of who your king should be? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. You don't know what your path is going to look like, but trust God to make it straight because he sees everything. He sees what you don't see, so don't lean on your own understanding of things. And so there's a few basic ways. This isn't going to be you know, rocket science or you know, anything new. I'm not going to patent this or anything like that. You've heard most of this before. But it, it, but it comes down just to the heart of who we are. First thing is commit yourself to, to this, to Scripture, to knowing it. Not a, you know, not a Sunday morning you know, knowledge of it, but a real, be a student of it. Meditate over it. Come to know it, because this is our standard. This wipes away culture and our cultural expectations. This transcends all that so that we can see clearly. Second, be united with God on a regular basis through prayer, because as you pray, your heart becomes more conformed to who God is. And the Holy Spirit of God, as you connect with him, the Holy Spirit of God inside you, it teaches you and it helps you to discern. And it gives you discernment beyond human wisdom so that despite everything you, you see, all the circumstances, you can be like David, ha, you know, have God's heart and God's view on circumstances and look and say, I don't know how this is going to work, but God's got a better way. I don't know what the better choice here is, but I'm not going to make a bad one just because it seems like the only one. Third, keep, find a group of friends or a small group that are, that are mature. Remember, the, you know, the more people that you have around you that choose a certain path and the more likely you are to interact with them in the future, the greater your chance of following their direction. So guess what you can do? Choose good ones. Okay? Choose people that will encourage you, that will, you know, that will motivate you, that will inspire you, that will, that will hold you accountable, that, you know, that, that won't just agree with what you're, you say and you know, be yes-men in your life, but will really hold you to account in love. Walk with them. Ask them real questions about your life. Open yourself up. Be vulnerable to them and let them tell you what they really see you know, as, as you walk with Christ together. And the fourth and final thing is, you know, to use the Nike phrase, just do it. Just serve God. Put yourselves in situations where, despite our busyness, despite the million other things that we could choose, make serving God a priority. You know, find ways to serve Him in this church, in the community, in your family, among your friends. Be a witness, but actively do 
what he said to do. And as you do that, you'll find yourself that you have to trust him more because you're really stepping out on faith there. And you'll find that as you're about the king's business, you're able to see situations much more clearly. As you train your heart and your mind to be obedient. You build momentum. But, you, know, you, you, you see things more clearly. So that's, that's my simple encouragement to you guys today. Is not to give in to culture. Not to give in to the relationships in your lives that may be a bad influence. Don't be like Israel and choose just the obvious answer. See beyond it. See God's heart on a situation. And be still until you know what the better choice is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time we had to come together and and look at your word. God, I pray that we would see clearly how we've allowed culture to invade our hearts, to choke out our spiritual life. God, I pray that you would lead us to repentance, that we would make real changes in our life based on your word, based on your, your conviction and your leading. God, I pray that we would see the situations, and, and even more than that, the people in our lives through your eyes as people in need of you, and that we would recognize ourselves as the salt and the light in that situation to provide the hope of you. Lord, you, you are in control, as we've already prayed today. You know these situations. There is no situation that is beyond your, you know, your ability to intervene, and so we pray that we would walk in faith. And we would engage these very difficult situations and very difficult people. Not with our own abilities. Not because we think we can, but because we know that we can through you. And that you have called us to such a purpose. And even, even if we should pay a price for it, as many do in this world today. God, we know that, that you've simply called us to be faithful. And that the results of changing hearts is yours. So God, thank you for your word. Thank you for instructing us today. And may we we live it as we seek to serve you. Amen.